as you may know, Adventure Rider Radio and ARR Raw is powered by some ads and your support from listeners just like you. And we really appreciate the support that we get from listeners because, honestly, we couldn't do this without your help. So we have a, a support page set up at www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button, and anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on the show. And that's what I'm about to do right now, just our, our way of, uh, of saying an extra thank you going uh, above and beyond the call of duty, I always like to say, but um, we certainly appreciate it. And we appreciate everybody who donates. Don't get me wrong, if it was $10, $20, or whatever, but anything $50 or more, we like to give you a shout-out. And so for this episode, I've got a shout-out for a few people here. Noah Orlin, James Wildday, Mark Plank, Brian Eck, Michael Kenyon, Dane Peterson, John Rice, and Ian Lund. All of you, thank you very much. Really great. Really helped make a difference for us for this month. And of course, if you'd like to do, uh, if you'd like to support the show and uh, and get in there with your other listeners, www.adventureriderradio, as I mentioned, dot com. And uh, no, that's not it. It's not www.adventureriderradio, as I mentioned, dot com. It's www.adventureriderradio.com. <laughs> Drop by there and click on the support button. We'd love to have you uh, supporting the show. Anyway, well, I, I won't hold things up anymore. This is raw for November two thousand seventeen. Come into the mic. I think you're you're you sound like you're a long way away. I was. I was doing an invoice. Just hang on. Uh. <laughs> Just hang on, Jim. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, come on. Just trying to conduct business here. <laughs> Brian always seems like he's doing something else. He, I always get this feeling like he's sort of sitting there wiggling around in his, in his seat, ready ready to go. Like yeah. Right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad he can't hear that because you are so right. <laughs> <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is November 2017, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by our regular Overland co-host, starting with Shirley Hardy Ricks, way down under. Shirley, good. Is it afternoon for you right now? It's afternoon and we're expecting thunderstorms today, so if you hear a big clap and growl, it won't be Brian, it Ooh, will be the sky. I love thunderstorms, that's the essence of summer for me. Yeah, it's springtime here, so we're hoping that it also brings a big dose of rain. Mind you, a friend of ours is riding home after spending the night with us and uh, she's ridden through rain the whole way home, so she's probably not so happy about it. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, Brian is also by your side, Brian Ricks, Hello. Certainly am, Jim, and uh, good afternoon, evening, and hello to everyone out there. Um, yeah, the weather's great. I love it at this time of year. It's great for riding. Come home when you're hot and sweaty, have a swim, um, and just enjoy the weather. That's It's great. I, I'm like you, Jim. I like a, a good thunderstorm. It doesn't worry me at all. Well, on the coast of Canada, the West Coast in British Columbia, just gearing up for winter, probably just weathered his first winter winter storm, as we have done as well. Grant Johnson. Grant, good evening. 
Hello, everybody. Yes, we've just had a major storm through here. It was really nasty and wet and pouring rain and windy, but hey, that's the way it goes. It's it's winter in British Columbia. That's the way it is. Yeah, our power went off earlier today. It was off for several hours. Just a mere tree falling on a line. Just a, a day in the life of the coastal windstorms. Yep, and I'll echo the thunderstorms. I let, used to love going to uh, Vancouver Island on the West Coast, uh, where you could get some amazing winter storms in December, January. It was a wonderful time to be there. Mm, yeah, it definitely is. Okay, and Sam Manicom. Sam, is it is it evening or daytime? Hey, top of the evening. If I was actually at home at the moment, it would be 9 o'clock at night, and it would be a very fine winter's night. Well, most of us, I guess everybody except for the Aussies, are, are into... Um, winter weather and also Graham Field in Bulgaria. Graham, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. I've just woken up, but I'm all right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sound you know, very quiet, very subdued, I must say. It's the early, early morning show. <laughs> right, right. Because on the last one, I believe you posted a picture about drinking a Bloody Mary first thing. Yeah, I'll just have my second cup of tea and then we'll see what we can do. But unfortunately, I'm out of Tabasco. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> do, you, do you want to put this oh. recording off so you can go get some Tabasco? I mean, I don't want you to stay dry the whole time. There's nowhere open at five o'clock in the morning in Bulgaria, Jim. There's no 24-hour <laughs> stores there? I thought you lived near a big city. Oh, yeah, but... <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I'm trying to find Tabasco. <laughs> there must be something in your garden, Graham. Just go and stick, grab some weeds and stick it in and give them a twirl round. You might be lucky, but then again, no, we like you. We, we want you to be on the next show too. So I've faced bigger challenges in life than no Tabasco, we bloody Mary. <laughs> so, so to kick things off, I want to start off with a listener question because I think it's going to be easier for Graham to get his head around rather than asking something technical about mechanical knowledge. <laughs> so we're going to go easy on him while he eases into the day. So James Gale writes, how stinky is too stinky? He says he's interested to know what the esteemed raw panel or campfire group smell like. That's quite a, an adventurous question, really. <laughs> uh, he says it's not born out of a, his curiosity is not born out of a fetish. It's purely practical and social. Um, when you're on a long journey, what do you do about clean clothes? How many changes of clothes are reasonable, um, given the lack of, of uh, storage space? And do you plan to stop in towns, use laundromats, uh, motel facility? Do you take some soap and wash your clothes in a river, Graham? Or do you keep riding until the police arrest you for excessive air pollution? (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, think too stinky is when you notice it. And when you do notice it, there's no warning time. That is it. It's time to do something because what you've previously been oblivious to, everybody else has known for some time. So when you notice it, when you notice it's time to do something about it now. (laughs) If you are smelling you, I mean, I think you're way past it. You've lost friends for like days (laughs) to that point. (laughs) That's what I mean. Once you notice it, it's urgent. I would would say it's... I would say it's more when you stop to talk to someone and they lean into you and then they take a startled step back. That is probably, <laughs> that's your indicator right there. Listen, I the moral of this story in a line is... to pay petrol in, uh, I think it was in Kazakhstan or somewhere, and there was this awful smell of BO. And I'm standing looking around in this sort of self-righteous sort of indignation. Who on earth has so little respect for their personal... Oh, my God, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, it's a very useful tool when you're coming out to a border crossing or something like that, isn't it? Just don't wash for a week beforehand. 
the guys are going to be so happy to get you out of their office. Okay, that runs contrary to other other tips I've heard where you're supposed to get cleaned up and, and be looking clean and presentable. Yeah, well, I mean, you yeah. just don't clean under the armpits, do you? Mm. But actually, you know, I, when I landed in um, the USA this time, I was going to catch a shuttle bus back uh, from the airport into um, Chantilly. And um, most of the drivers looked and sounded as if they were immigrants from Africa. And I was really entertained at how they were bouncing around between French, a local lingo, um, and American English. Um, and it was all very entertaining, watching everybody rushing up and down. And then our driver got into um, the minibus, and his BO was so bad and such a familiar smell, I could almost work out which part of Africa he was from and <laughs> the food that he was still managing to traditionally find and eat. Oh. <laughs> For those of you who are listening while having breakfast, lunch or dinner, sorry. Yeah, we're sorry about that. <laughs> that just conjures up the most appalling Smelly image. Well, it was a warm day. Don't, don't you remember, Very you familiar. know, when you wash sometimes and, you, and your t shirts just don't get clean anymore? You know that, you know, that, and they just smell. That's probably time to get a new t shirt. There's <laughs> yeah. always somewhere to buy a new t shirt. Yeah. But I mean, quite seriously, James asks a very serious question How many changes of clothes are reasonable? I reckon four pairs of knickers, four pairs of socks. Three. Nice, but then I need something to wear as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. jocks. <laughs> well, you, you know, you swap, sure. You know, inside oh, out, back don't. to front, and then you swap over. But your ass is a little smaller than mine. That's the only thing. And I stretch them a bit. Oh, dear idea. <laughs> your fella has just got away with words, hasn't he? Your <laughs> ass is a little bit smaller than mine. What? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Well, I reckon three pairs of undies and three pairs of socks, two T-shirts, short sleeve, and one long sleeve T-shirt so that you've got um, mozzie and sun protection. A fleece, neck scarf, a brimmed hat, and your bike boots and flip-flops. And that's just about, that just about does you. Yeah, that's I, I, not bad. I would agree with yep. that to a certain point, Sam, but uh, what I like to take is a collared, you know, short sleeve shirt because you can wear them under your bike jacket. Or they dress up okay when you go out. Something with a, a collar. But three pairs, that, that sends you washing every other day sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah but when you roll day. into a hotel or a camping site or you find a stream or whatever else it is, then you just wash. It's very pleasant. It's Throw them in the bottom of the well. shower. Throw them yep. in the bottom of the shower and walk on them with the yes. soap that you're washing your body, and, and they're done. Rinse out, rinse yep. out in the sink. And take a pegless clothesline to string between your bike and the tent or your bike and a tree or your bike and the other end of the bike, which we've done, wrapped it around, and Bob's your uncle. Yeah. I had a friend think... called Damien, and um, he was a, a very lightweight traveller, um, and um, he only had one set of clothes, and when he needed to wash his clothes, he put a bin bag on and went into the laundrette. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, he literally sat in the laundrette in his bin bag. Um, he said he had n never had so many conversations with pretty girls at any other time. Uh, that is really bizarre. That is just why not so a great here. Why didn't we think of that? Yeah, why not yeah, his riding gear? It's a very good point. Why not his riding gear? 
<laughs> yes, I think I think Grant just rode right a big hole through that story. Yeah. <laughs> well, some guys actually ride in their one set of clothes, like jeans and a t-shirt, and that's what they travel in too. I think it's crazy, but that's that's a way of doing it. Certainly lightweight. Uh, well, when you're traveling in really hot, sweaty countries, there is nothing nicer, is there, than having a, a wash yourself or a shower and then putting on clean clothes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great one. If you're wearing, if you make sure you take synthetics because you can wash them and put them on wet in a hot climate, and it's actually really nice. They dry well totally and agree. they cool you off as you go. But uh, I'm a fan of washing virtually every day. Every time I have a shower, wash something. Yep. It takes five minutes or less yeah. in the shower. That's basically what we do. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You can always tell when you're on the road when you take a T-shirt off and smell it and go, yep, that'll do another day. <laughs> yep. <laughs> at home, it would not do another day. No, at home, it would go straight into the dirty clothes basket because you have a washing machine and you'll do a load of clothes tomorrow. But, yep, when you're on the road, you make allowances. Uh, well, you know, or you could do what Shirley did and leave half your underwear behind. I know, that was a bit of a problem. <laughs> You can always so buy more. When it comes to washing your clothes then, so there's washing them in the shower, obviously the laundromat. Um, do you guys stop at Rivers and wash at all? Oh, absolutely. Nah. Yep, done that. Yep. Not much fun. Always carry a biodegradable bar of soap with me. you got to be careful yeah, about you that. Need well, that. Yeah, I was about to say, you have to have biodegradable stuff. Yeah. And the other thing that I carry is a nail brush because then the really um, grimed-in dirt you can brush out with a, an L brush and your and your biodegradable soap. It works really well. It's also great for getting the oil out from underneath your fingernails. What's the nail brush? An L brush. So it's, you just sort of fit it over your knuckles, and oh. so the bristles are about um, a, cent, a centimeter long. Do you not know what a nail brush is in Tim. Canada? Um, obviously, I don't. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have a brush that fits that description, but I would have never called it a nail brush. What do you call it? Well, I just call it a brush because I don't really have much of a use for it except for cleaning my rims. <laughs> I thought you used your old toothbrush for that. No, I use my good toothbrush, but I don't put it down on the rims. Obviously, I use the above the rims for my toothbrush. <laughs> How about you, Graham? Are you stopping at laundromats? Uh, no. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, no. You can you can wash it when you get a hotel. That's a big enough expense. You don't need to get a laundromat as well. I think you can, yeah, stomp on them in the shower and that works pretty well. And uh, and going back to the whole sort of three pairs of underwear idea, I did used to subscribe to that. And then I went to Mexico once and a fourth pair had snuck inside a pannier. It changed everything. Oh, my God, the ease of the journey. Instead of having <laughs> instead of having to stop every other day for a clean underwear, I had the extra day and it didn't take up that much space. I would definitely go for the four pair option now. Wow. Bit of luxury. Luxury. It was four. four underwear, but two pairs of trousers and. Separate. I have separate socks for riding as opposed to uh, where walking around in my riding in my running shoes. So I find I've got um, like five or six pairs of socks, three of each, and that works. But four socks underwear. Take, yep. Socks I take up a think, lot of room. Yeah, they do. It's really annoying. I don't think the big problem is the easily washable things: socks, underwear, t-shirt. The big problem is that the things that aren't easily washable, like motorcycle boots, motorcycle trousers. Because they do get they they get filthy from the outside, but they also get smelly from the inside. And you don't have a change of them, and having to take out inner soles and scrub them or turn out motorcycle trousers, taking out armour, that's quite a laborious job. But it does need to get done when you're wearing them all day, every day. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. You're That's quite what, right. Uh, and if you don't keep your Gore-Tex and things like that rinsed out, then that can clog and stop working. A good sunny day at a campground, that's the time to do that when you can just lay it out on the grass and get your nail brush out, Jim, and scrub <laughs> yeah. it with your nail brush and then just lie, lie everything out there to dry. If you haven't washed clothes by hand before, you'd be surprised at how effective it is. Uh, it's just as effective as a washer and you have total control over how much how much you scrub them. Yeah, it's, it's quite easy. Like you say, a hot summer day on, at a campsite, you'll have it all dried within a few hours, a little bit of a breeze. It, it's really quite easy to do. And very satisfied as well. It is a a job well done, but it's also there. Also, is a huge risk with laundromats, and the risk involves the dryer. Yes. Now, my husband had a very fine pair of thermal underwear, long. That um, after a very dear friend of ours in Pakistan's houseboy did the washing, um, I couldn't have even fitted into them. They were tiny, 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 tiny. And I managed to do the same thing to one of his favourite singlets in uh, Alaska. Into the dryer, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. And by the time it occurred to me, it was like you could put on a teddy bear. I think if you just wear them, Brian, they'll stretch out. I don't think so. Not that the damage was beyond that. Well, we were up in the Karakoram Mountains. I don't wear uh, thermals very much. I thought, now's the time to wear the thermals. I got them out and I couldn't fit them above my knee. (laughs) Oh, the language was so colourful. You know, we were talking about laundrettes earlier on. Um, we've all seen people coming out of really primitive accommodation, a mud hut or that sort of thing, and they have absolutely pristine clothes on, immaculately dark black trousers and and crystal clean white shirts. And you sort of look at them and you think, how on earth do they manage to do this? One of the things that um, I've got involved with while um, travelling down through Africa, for example, um, was sometimes to give my clothes to a local in a village alongside of a river. And I tell you what, when I got them back, they were cleaner than they had been for months and months. And I had no idea how they were getting so much filth out. The other place that I tried that was in India, where you had the doby wallers. And yep. you'd give your clothes to these guys, they'd write a number on them, and they would just go into these huge swirling underground dobies and be washed by, you know, 20 or 30 different people. But you'd then get your clothes back, and yes, you'd get all of your clothes back, pressed and immaculately clean. It's worth doing just for the experience of it, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, does, it doesn't cost a lot of money, Sam. And, and, and I think Shirley has still got a T-shirt. That, uh, they didn't put numbers on our <laughs> stuff, but it, it actually little di- different coloured cotton through the tag. Yep. And one, one of her shirts the other day, I picked it up, it's still got a bit of coloured cotton on it. From uh, one of the washing wallets, and it's a souvenir. Yep, yeah, right. But it it helps the uh, economy go round if you hire people to do things like that. Two dollars, you know, it's big deal. And you're right, Sam. It's an experience, and they do such a good job. And we watched them on the the banks of one of the rivers in India, and they pound the clothes on these rocks. So hard. That's how they get all that stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't guarantee your Gore-Tex would come out okay. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think I'd put my Gore-Tex in. No. Yeah. Even even finds uh, high-tech synthetic fabrics. I'm nervous about that. Cotton, sure, because I've watched them in Central America washing our clothes. 
yeah, they beat the crap out of it, basically. And it works great with cotton, but fine synthetics, mm, no thanks. Pass. Yeah. Sometimes it's best not to think about how it's done. Just yes. appreciate the fact that someone has done done you a huge favour for a very small amount of money and you've got clothes that don't smell anymore. The other thing is, when, you, when you've got half dirty clothes, half clean clothes in your pannier, you've got to separate them. Otherwise, the smell's going to go through everything. That's mm. the other thing you've got to think about. Yeah. We have a laundry bag, a stuff sack that's a laundry bag. It works yeah. great. Same, yeah. Yeah, same. And that's the, the one that you sh- that's the one you don't leave on the hotel bed in Sofia with half your underwear, one of your only three T-shirts and a couple of pairs of socks. Don't leave that dirty clothes bag there. Do you remember the name of the hotel I'll pick it up for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you see anyone in Sofia in a Horizons Unlimited T-shirt, you know she was the maid in the room. Uh, <laughs> the I don't think you're exclusive to that. There are You see those T-shirts everywhere. I don't know if <laughs> but funnily, you know which- in Bulgaria, the word for smelly or the word for smell is brave. And so when I go camping with my girlfriend, we have a brave bag. You've got to be brave to go close to it. <laughs> Graham, you mentioned uh, padding and things like that, washing that. Is that where, do you wash that by hand or you've thrown that in the laundromat? No, the, sorry, the, the Gore-Tex stuff, the big clothes then. No, I was thinking more so, of you, you were talking about pulling the padding out, like even your shoulder pads, your knee pads, your elbow pads, things like that and washing them. Wash it by hand. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking a lot about um, our clothes. Now, if we keep our bodies um, cleaner, then um, our clothes last that a little bit longer. And Birgit and I were very bemused when we got to North America on the trip because we found it a lot harder to keep clean here on a budget than we did in developing world countries. In South America, there were the death showers. Um, In Asia, there were the Mandy's. Have you guys used Mandy's before? No, and the death shower I've never heard of. Oh, the death shower. That's where you've got the shower head and you've got bare wires going into the water. Oh, oh yes, yeah, no, yeah. I have had one of those. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we've had those many times. <laughs> They're terrifying. Don't put your hand in the water. Oh, yeah, and always wear flip-flops, otherwise you could yes. end up with a free perm. Um, <laughs> but Mandy's, that would, um, found these all over Southeast Asia. And what it basically is, um, a concrete bathtub or sort of reservoir. And um, the reservoir keeps you cold water. And what you're supposed to do is to scoop the water from that over you so that you get wet, so you can soak yourself down, and then scoop it over to um, rinse all the soap off again. Um, but what, of course, a lot of people, um, the ignorant people do, is that they think, oh, great, a bath, and they climb in the whole thing, not realising that that water supply um, was the water for the whole family for a week. But, I mean, in Africa, quite a lot of places, you get given a large washing-up bowl um, and a scoop, and you stand in the bowl and you scoop water from the bucket um, over the top of you, and then the water that ends up in the bowl um, gets taken and poured onto the garden, so you help water the peanuts and so on. And I mean, we were very conservative with with those sometimes because the water being carried for kilometres when you're out in villages. Sometimes people might have carried jerry cans of of water on the tops of their heads for five or six miles to bring the water to the village, and then to heat it for you, the visitor. Um, then they'd be burning trees that had been carried for miles and miles as well. Um, there was one time we were staying in a village in northern Uganda. And um, we weren't using all the water that we were given in the bucket. And um, the villagers ended up sending a delegation to try and find out whether they weren't heating the water hot enough because (laughs) that was the reason we weren't using it all. 
Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, you kind of don't think about that sometimes, do you? You really need to be aware of where you are when you're bathing and washing clothes to make sure you're not using up far more of a, a very valuable resource for the local community. Of course, in the USA, you always have dude wipes. Oh, oh, no. Have you seen these? They're really funny. It's like baby wipes, wet wipes, but they're packaged as dude wipes. <laughs> hmm, I miss those. <laughs> uh, I suppose you could ask, what's a dude? No. Is that just well, a silly question? Are they just come for on, men? Grant or Jim, you've got to explain what a dude is. Don't drag me into this. <laughs> Being well clear. I don't think Jim would know because he doesn't know what a nail brush is. Should I Google this and find out what it is so no one's going to a tell dude, me? A dude is just a guy. Yeah, oh, that's, that's right. all right. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay, well, that's a, I, I, it's your imagination. Your, your imagination running wild, surely. I just didn't know what a dude wipe would be. Sure, sure. I actually have a packet of a friend holding a, um, a photo of a packet, a friend holding a packet of these dude wipes. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. Thank you. I'll feel. You're as, welcome. I just feel like my education is lacking something because I didn't know that straight away. Well, surely I'd never seen dude wipes before that moment either. So. <laughs> we have used similar things going across the desert, surely. You know, where you have to carry everything that you want to take into the desert. It gets so. Um, efficient with your water usage and it drives me nuts to see people brushing their teeth with the tap running mm -hmm. <laughs> because oh, yeah. I was always brought up that you had to preserve as much water as possible because it's a precious resource. Yeah, so, I don't care where I am, I don't run the tap when I brush my no. teeth, I always no. it, it, just don't need to. I remember years ago watching, well, not that many years ago, but watching Sesame Street and there was this little kid brushing his teeth and on the other half of the screen there was a fish in the pond and the pond was going down and down and down in level because he had a tap running while he was brushing his teeth. And so the fish phoned the kid's house and the kid answered the phone and the fish is going, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> turn the tap off when you brush your teeth. <laughs> and that environmental and, uh, message worked perfectly with you. It you did, stuck in my head. And even though yeah. you say it wasn't that long ago, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was in my 20s. <laughs> a long time ago. In your 20s, oh, that's good. He's <laughs> doing prep school for the 15th year. Yeah. <laughs> so off of the, the dirty clothes and smelly things, on to what Noel Bowerman wrote in to ask. He says, what place did you find confronting and how did you come to terms with it? Hmm. That's a hard hmm. one. I, I can't figure out how to answer that at all. Um, um, I, I, I can go with um, a little town in Pakistan called Dera, where the um, the Western world had poured heaps and heaps of money into this place to stop the opium trade. It was one of those villages where you could buy bales of opium and, and product and all that sort of stuff. So what they did is they turned it into uh, a town that uh, manufactured illegal firearms and sold them to um, different um, mobsters and gangsters and probably Al-Qaeda and all those sorts of places. We were taken for a tour in there. And um, <laughs> remember that, Shirley? Our guide said to us, if I see the policeman, don't tell him where I'm taking you. And next thing the policeman stopped the car and we all had to squeeze up in the back for the policeman to get into the car, and he was actually in charge of taking the bribe for the community to have the tourists come in and see where they made the firearms. 
and he actually suggested that he and his wife and their eight children might like to come and live in Australia and Brian and I might like to take over his home in Dera in Pakistan. <laughs> Funnily enough, we didn't take up his very you kind didn't. offer. Yeah. No. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were in this tiny little car and we had to, because you couldn't go in there on a motorbike, but we had to go across this um, open field where they were playing cricket, went straight across a cricket pitch and then uh, into these little back streets where um, they were manufacturing firearms from, you know, lathing everything and doing the whole bit. And there was all sorts of weirdos in there buying guns, wasn't yeah. there, sure? Yeah, Russian R- uh, gangsters. Yeah, Russian gangsters for sure. You, you got out of the car and someone fired a pistol <laughs> just in the back of your head. So I got back in the car. But they also, I found a bit disturbing there was the children would follow the visitors around hoping that they would fire off some some weapons and then the empty shell casings, the kids would scramble in the dirt to get these because the gun dealers would buy them back off the kids and that's how they were making some money to to buy food. It was a very it was a very disturbing place. So how did you deal with it? Well, 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 you know, we I, didn't stay I, I went along with it and I went in because I was interested to see what they do and, and I could have bought a 9 mil pistol and um, a pen pistol, which is just like a, a single shot twenty-two in a, in a pen, for what it costs surely to have a hair done in, in um, Islamabad. Let it go, Brian. No. Value <laughs> <laughs> for the money. <laughs> but, you know, and then I went and um, fired off a Kalashnikov um, and, you know, you'd sort of roll with it a little bit and then you put that experience behind you and leave. You, had, you, had, you must roll with it, whatever whatever you're confronted with. I, that's the way I see it. And look, we put ourselves in that situation and it was probably – a little more confronting than what we thought it would be. Yes, well, I didn't know what to expect. You know, you know, an illegal arms township. It wasn't even a factory, and all the children. Oh, yeah. yeah, the children. That that's upset me more than anything is the kids having to scramble around in the dirt for shell casings to get money to buy food. And the other, the other, the other one that I'll raise is we were in India and we'd been with some friends into a um, just a, a local um, a restaurant. And we came out and there was a woman standing there begging with a little baby in her arms. And um, I felt bad that we'd just eaten and she looked starving. And there was a baker over the road. So I went over the road and bought some bread and gave her the bread. Uh, she didn't want the bread. She wanted money. That's what she wanted. But, you she know, was... you think you're doing the right thing? Yeah, in, India, in India, there are so many beggars, though, that... Um, are part of beggar groups and so on and quite often um, the children will be mutilated so that they can actually go out and beg and um, earn a living and these guys um, earn a living um, by begging and then they have to pay a a huge percentage of whatever they get to the beggar king yeah it's it's quite a bizarre thing she may well have been hungry but no she needed the money so she could keep the boss satisfied it's a sad it's a, thing, it's isn't a, it? It's a shocking industry, a yeah. really shocking industry. You, you, really, you hear you, stories you, of you, people that pour um, boiling water over their babies so uh, that they become scarred and so that they can go out and beg. Um, and do you think those stories are, are true, Sam? They're not apocryphal? You think they No, that I think that they're happen? true. I've seen uh, um, people begging on the streets and with um, 
children that have been mutilated in one form or another, or that they've mutilated themselves or somebody has mutilated them. Um, quite often it's scalding oil or, um, or water, that sort of stuff. Um, and how do you talking. deal with that? Oh, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? So difficult. I mean, I just took it on a one-by-one -one basis, and I would always stand and try to have a conversation with people, and I would watch their eyes. Um, and just go with a little bit of instinct from what their eyes were telling me. And sometimes I would give them money, and sometimes I would try to give them food. Um, but in the end, I'm even though I'm travelling on a budget, I'm the wealthy tourist. So, and I, if I'm going to give money away, I'd rather do it like that than give it away to um, with bribes. Um, yeah, and then you, you know, it's a it's a conundrum, isn't it? Really, because you know, if you give them money, are you perpetuating that industry? Or yeah, how, you know, it's really hard to um, get that right in your own mind as to what to do. And I think you're right, Sam. You just got to take it on a case by case basis. Yeah, because yeah. no, it absolutely. is definitely an industry in a lot of places in the world. There's just like Sam's saying, people are deliberately mutilating in order to do that, and it does become an industry, and you see it all the time. Um, I know of people here in Vancouver that one story: one guy was out there begging on a regular basis. And he was chasing around for empty pop cans, which are um, returnable for a deposit here. And he ended up putting his kids through university with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you can actually make a good living on the street if you're a good beggar and scrounging for pop cans. When you see people here pushing, uh, you know, the indigent people pushing shopping carts full, like overflowing huge amounts of pop cans because mm. it's refundable. You get a deposit. They make a good living off it, and it's it's amazing how much you can make. So, how much you support it, and what you do, and how you deal with it, I think you really have to be very careful whether the person you're talking to or looking at is in the industry or is genuinely in need. And if you're they're genuinely in need, and that's a judgment you have to call. Sure, help them out as best you can. And I like the idea of always buying them food. Giving them money is rarely a good idea. In and the giving UK, the money to a recognition. Sorry, Shelley. No, go, Sam. In the UK, Burger and I very rarely give money to beggars, but we will go and buy food or drink and that sort of stuff and we'll mm. give it to them. Um, and yep. sometimes they look at us with disdain and sometimes they're just incredibly grateful. And every time yeah. we do it and we get that incredibly grateful look, then we think, yeah, we did the right thing. We do give yeah. money to people who are doing something to earn it. So um, in India or, or wherever... Um, if somebody's playing a, a musical instrument or tapping some drums or whatever else it may be and they're actually trying to do something and they've got the begging bowl out, then, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, she'll, she'll have a ripper in, um, oh, we're over near the Kurdish area in Turkey and um, we came out to get on the bike and she's in all her big bike gear and this little kid came up with a set of scales and put them down in front of her. He was begging, but he wanted her to stand on the scales so she could weigh herself. Not a good move. For a woman. <laughs> Asking a woman to weigh herself at the best of times, but when she's wearing boots and pants and a big jacket, so we gave him food that we had on the bike, and he was wrapped. Oh, yeah. he was... Picked up his little scales and scurried off. So no one else could steal the food off him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, there's some entrepreneurship. I I love to see that. Like Sam was saying, if somebody's actually trying to work for their money, that's great. I'm very happy to give them something. Graham, you've never come into a place that you're not comfortable in. Um, yeah, I was thinking that going back to the confrontation uh, thing, because uh, I feel like I know Noel. He's always one of the first people to uh, 
to like my Facebook posts. <laughs> I want to give him a good answer. Uh, He's a good bloke. Yeah. He, so, um, to be honest, as a solo traveller, um, it's very easy to disarm those situations. Firstly, people were generally confrontational when they're afraid. And a, a single person <laughs> wearing clean clothes is, is, gives them nothing to be afraid about. So... I, I, and I've, I've always got a happy, a happy, stupid smile. I don't look threatening. I don't have threatening behaviour. I certainly don't assert myself in any situation to try and, and because I'm never going to win it. Um, they're locals and they deal with it all the time. So, I mean, the only real confrontation I've ever come across is in, in the UK with drunks and idiots. But once I've been abroad, maybe it's just naive bliss, but I just... I was sitting there while you were talking, trying to think of confrontational situations in all the different countries, and I simply haven't had any. Sometimes over-enthusiastic, sometimes a little overbearing, um, but never really confrontational. Well, I guess it's confrontational and things that are just part of their way of life that we find very confronting because of our way of life. Well, a lot of people say that about India, don't they? They go to India. I mean, I've heard yeah. people say they couldn't take it. They get there and just, just it's so busy and so overrun that they just couldn't take it. They've had to leave. Yeah, because it's we so found, different. We found the pyramids were like that. You want to go see the pyramids and the touts will drive you insane. No matter what you do, they want to sell you something and they want to help you and they want to guide you and uh, no charge. And there's, you know, there's, there's nothing to, I'm not going to try and sell you anything. I just want to show you a, it's rubbish and it just goes on and on and on. And you eventually end up having to hire somebody just to, so that he'll get rid of the rest of them. We did that at the Blue Mosque in Istanbul. Yeah, we, um, you know, they, the touts come up to you as you go into the Blue Mosque school uh, and you have to leave your shoes there and, you know, come to my carpet shop, free tea, free tea. And I needed. We were actually looking for a carpet, a really nice one that my grandmother had left when she passed. It, left me some money, so I wanted to buy a really nice carpet to remember her by. And we actually said to a guy, "Okay, we'll see you at the other side." And he just about fell over. He didn't, didn't he? know what to do. He didn't know what to do. He's <laughs> <laughs> so used to people saying yeah. no. You know, going back to um, confrontation situations, while you guys have been talking, I've been thinking about one from Pakistan and. Um, I love traveling in Pakistan. Um, I was made incredibly welcome there. Um, people just kept up to me, coming up to me um, and saying, can I help you? And not in a pushy, hassly, touty sort of way, but just genuinely wanting to help. But um, in um, Western Pakistan, in a, a small town, um, I think I looked at this man in the wrong way. Um, he looked like an Afghan. And, man, you could see whatever it was that I'd done, I'd really upset him. He was not a happy chappy. And it was almost like I'd slighted his honour. He reacted that intensely. And this guy's hand was on his knife, and, and he was drawing his knife. And, and I was thinking, good grief, how on earth am I going to handle this? Um, and the only way I could do it was just reach out my empty hand and, um, and aim it towards his. And um, he sort of hesitated and then shook it back and... Um, I put my hands together then as a gesture of apology and he seemed to think that that was all, all right and honour was satisfied. But this was all done with no language at all other than tense body language. Um, yeah. Well, um, Gary Turner writes, what do you do when you have free time on a trip? Reading, sleep, laundry, drinking? 
Free time on a trip. All of the above. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and? <laughs> That's what we always talk about. You should give yourself time off from the trip. Yeah, necessary. Be it a day, a weekend, a week here or there, and on those times you do whatever it is that you would do when you had, you know, a day off at home. Be it go to the pub and get hammered or go to the laundromat and do your washing or just lie about reading. Lay in the hammock. You've got a photo of me laying in the hammock reading. Oh, lazy son. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> so you guys don't organise sightseeing or anything like for those days? You know, you're... Sure. I mean, is, oh, that we just, time, yeah. is, that, is that free time or is that considered trip time? I don't know. That's oh, trip time, I think. That's what you're there for, right? Yeah. Free time is when you don't do anything. You just blonk. Yeah, you're tired. You want to rest. You want to turn your brain off. I find you get so overwhelmed in most places. Just the amount of input you get in a day's travel in a strange country is really hard on the brain and it needs a break. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, so we just like to take that a little time off, and we'll sit back and we'll read a pocketbook. Or now we use Kindles, of course, because Kindles are wonderful, uh, way better than carrying pocketbooks. And hoping you can trade them somewhere along the way. Remember, that was always our first thing we do when we arrived in a new town in Africa or South America. Was, was where where can we trade pocketbooks quick? <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you need you need time off, off, not just not uh, traveling, sightseeing talking to people, uh, going shopping, taking care of the various things, doing your laundry, whatever it takes. But you got to live. I mean, you are actually living on the road. So everything you would normally do at home is part of the stuff you do on the road. You do the same things. It's all part okay. of living. Go for a swim, go down the beach and swim. Although, you know, down on that um, Dalmatian coast, I think uh, some of the uh, big Russian women clothing is optional. So um, you probably need to... Uh, be a little bit circumspect with that, don't you, Sure. Don't bring me into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You've hung yourself out to dry. You just deal with it. Boy. But I think I'm, just, I'm sit, chain. just on, sitting in the tent and looking out at your bike um, is really nice because you just get to see it. And also you start noticing little things. Oh, I might move the location of this or that looks loose or <laughs> that's gone. And... Uh, <laughs> Which, That's gone. <laughs> that would be the very important bolt hang, holding something yeah. very imperative to the side of the bike. But there's one thing, you know, doing your morning bike maintenance, checking your tyre pressures, your chain, various things, but just to have time to sit and look at your lovely bike um, is uh, is really, I, I mean, I do that at home, go in a shed and just look at the bikes. So I think it's good time and productive time because you do notice little things or think of little things that might need doing. That's, I always enjoy that with my downtime, just looking at the bike. I like to go walking. I find after oh. spending lots of time sitting on the bike, I like to go off walking and um, hike the cliff paths or um, if I'm in a town or a city, go and explore the back streets and all of that sort of stuff. And I just find that um, after a week or so of walking a lot every day, when I get back on the bike, I just feel that much more um, in control and awake as if the exercise has you know, really done me a lot of good. Yeah, you yeah, need to get exercise in between. Fresh. Sure. Yeah. yeah, walking the markets and beautiful markets of the, the, the flower markets in Colombia and places like that, it's just wonderful. And that's yeah, what you're doing, experiencing. But you can call it a day off if you like, but really, it's just another wonderful day on the road. Can I just make a comment to Gary? And that is, mate, 
laundry does not count as free time usage. Oh, no, <laughs> definitely not, oh. unless you've got someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, on to some more technical things. Basic mechanical knowledge for motorcycle travel. What do you guys think is the absolute minimum mechanical knowledge you should have before taking an extended trip? And um, maybe with that, what things should you be checking regularly to prevent or at least try and mitigate problems down the road? Some of that depends on your bravery and your, your wallet. The bigger the wallet, the more you can just go into every major dealer as you go and then have the bike checked. But if you don't have a really fat wallet, you, you need to understand some basics. You, know, you, you have to be able to do basic checks, checking the oil. Um, I, I was a BMW dealer once upon a time for a short while. And I remember selling this guy a new bike. And he went off, came back about a month later or so and said, the bike's squeaking. Said, what do you mean it's squeaking? It's curious. I went out and he started it up and yep, it squeaked all right. Shut it down instantly. Pulled it into the shop checked the oil and there was no oil in it. He said, we, we said, when did you last check the oil? Check the oil? It's a BMW. It's a new bike. Well, he's Why got a I check point. The oil? You paid a lot of money for that bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had 3,000 miles on it and he hadn't brought it in for the first service. It's a, it's a new bike. It's a BMW. I just about cried. We put oil in it, fired it up checked it over and it seemed to be okay and he was fine but it was a miracle it was okay but can you imagine not enough knowledge to know to check the oil so that's the minimum you gotta know that i better add oil onto my list (laughs) you put petrol in it and it goes if it's got petrol in it and it won't go it's broken but now i'll have to add oil onto that Yes, it will stop at some point without oil. (laughs) (laughs) What about tires? I mean, you know, I sort of think that would run into the minimum mechanical knowledge. That's classic. I set off to ride the length of Africa with uh, knowing that I could change a tire because I've got a bicycle. It couldn't be that much different, could it? And the answer to that question was, Sam? Don't be bloody stupid, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) But you yeah. you survived. You you figured it out on the road, and here you are. Yeah, absolutely. You get on with it. Well, there's a lot of little shops at the side of these roads that can fix your tires for you. Anyway, there's a lot of them everywhere you go. There's always somebody who can fix tires. Tires seems to be the number one shop in the world. There's tire shops everywhere. But uh, some basic knowledge of knowing how to do it yourself, especially in a a rainy evening in the middle of nowhere, if you can at least put a plug in a tubeless, that's a useful thing to know, and it's not that hard. Um, I hate to put make a push, but buy my DVD, and you'll find out all you need to know and get out there and practice. It's not that hard. I teach people how to do it all the time. You can learn it. It's not difficult. I have seen one of your sessions, Grant, twice, and I did learn from you. Oh, Good. master. <laughs> Thank master. you. I, I think people need to learn how to do things like um, – change cables if their bike has cables so clutch and um, brake cables those sorts of things Um, normally they're relatively straightforward Um, light bulb changing I mean there are so many countries in the world if you roll across the border and your lights aren't working then you'll get pulled over and you're fined Um, one of the classic things that um, people need to learn is the location of the fuses the bike stops oh gosh the thing's broken well actually no maybe it might just be the fuse a fuse that's popped and I guess, you know, changing brake pads and those sorts of things. 
if your bike is old enough that you can work on valve clearances. Actually, that sounds horribly complicated, but it's not. I know that because I'm a mechanical idiot and I can do it. Yes, but you've got the um, easiest bike in the world to do it on, too. <laughs> well, yeah, but there are plenty of other bikes of, of, of sure. that era and subsequent um, that you can um, still work on things like that with. But, hey, modern technology means that those sorts of things have got to be attended to that much less anyway, haven't they? But um, yeah. with an older bike, it's part of the fun. And I think if you've got an older bike, then it's worth taking your bike to bits with a mechanic and just putting it back together again so that you know how the pieces slot in together and what the different things are called. And the fact that if, you know, you you do a nut up this tight or that tight, um, but, you know, maybe that's just too far for people. But I think tyre changes, oil and air filters, um, cable changing, light bulb changing, location of fuses. Oh, and um, use of duct tape and cable ties. <laughs> yes, and if you have a chain, you got to learn how to adjust the chain and yep. lubricate it and when to lubricate it and when not to lubricate it. Um, yeah. Adjusting the chain is really easy to get amazingly wrong. And if you, d if you have the chain too tight, it can destroy a transmission bearing, which on a lot of bikes means take the motor apart. That's a big deal. So you do want to get the chain right. Better too loose than too tight if you're ever in doubt. You can slap and around, then, it's fine. But if it's too tight, bad news. And there is always YouTube. It's yep. extraordinary. There's a, uh, there, there will be a YouTube video for every occasion, I reckon. And probably a thousand YouTube videos for every occasion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing, too, in such a short period of time. There's, there's so many YouTube videos. Like you said, Shirley, just about everything you can think of is a YouTube video showing you how to do it. Yeah. Yep. I do recommend make sure you watch several because uh, speaking of tire changing, of course, I've watched a lot of the tire changing videos on YouTube. And some of them are just so plain wrong. It's, it, it makes me angry. It's just horrible. Um, but watch a few and you should be able to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. And, uh, of course, the most important thing is take along a good manual. Uh, the manual for the bike is, is a godsend. Peter and Kay Forward are a great example. Neither one of them is a mechanic, and they rode their Harley Electric Glide around the world to 193 countries, I think it was at last count. Non-mechanics didn't know what they were doing, but they had a good manual. Kay would read the manual and tell P Peter what to do, and it worked great. And they did just about everything there was to do on that Harley. Yeah, we're talking about minimum, uh, minimum mechanical knowledge here, and I... Um I've just written down three little letters, SFA, but um, maybe I have to change that view a bit because you do you do need to know how to check the oil. You do need to know how to... Could I just ask, what does SFA stand for? Sweet <laughs> something all, sure. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> oh, I'm dear, terribly... Thanks, Shirley. I appreciate that. I didn't know what it was either. <laughs> I also thought it was going to be like... Adams is another one. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, same sort of thing. But, you know, you, when you talk about minimal stuff, you, yeah, look, if your light globe blows, there'll be someone that can fix it for you. Or if you don't know, you have trouble changing your time, there'll be someone who can help you do that mm -hmm. as well. But uh, maybe I have to change my, my point of view a little bit and say, well, yes, you do need to know how to check the oil. And if you've got a chain, you've got to know how to do that. And, no, and really, the big thing is listening, listening for little squeaks and grinds and moans from the bike so you're not going to have a catastrophic failure that to yeah. me i think is something you really should do and and the uh, basic regular daily maintenance or regular maintenance at least i have a philosophy that if it moves lubricate it and if it doesn't move maybe you might want to lubricate it anyway so that you can move it someday 
You want to make oh, like an adjustment that, bolt, for instance. That's, that, that, that's good, Grant. And the other thing you do, you could, you could be like Graham and just fall in love with your bike and sit there and look at it. <laughs> Graham, how about you? Basic mechanical knowledge. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a basic, probably a little bit above basic mechanical knowledge. But the thing is, um, it's... it's that you can be overconfident, and that's as bad as not having any knowledge at all. It's, oh, I know how to fix this. And then someone who does know how to fix it says, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that to it. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, changing the oil, for example, pretty basic stuff. You just take the filter out. You either clean it or you replace it. You take out the sump plug. You drain the oil. I've gone back to my sump plug and it's been finger tight. It's, oh, God, I didn't tighten up the sump plug. Wow. <laughs> so, so you know, it's all very well that. knowing how to do it. Knowing how to do it is one thing. Knowing how to do it properly is another thing. <laughs> yes, the, the sump plug is one that I'm really, really, really careful about because as a former dealer, I couldn't tell you how many sump plugs and crankcases I've had to replace or helicoil or whatever because some home mechanic over-tightened Over-tightened, it. Over-tightened, yeah. yeah. Over-tightening yeah. is the number one mistake people make. That's yeah. a big bolt and a really thin aluminum casting. It's not very strong. And speaking as a mechanic for many, many years and, and actually trained people to be a mechanic and so forth, I safety wire my drain plugs because I don't trust myself. And I think I'm fairly competent. So that's a, that's a good idea. Be, be terrified. Drill, yeah. Get somebody to drill your drain plugs for you and put a bit of wire in them. Then you don't have to tighten them so tight. You can tighten them up to, yeah, that feels probably good enough. And then you safety wire it and it's good. It's not going to go anywhere. A lot of drain plugs have uh, crush washers. And all you want is what enough. What do you mean by safety wire, Grant? Um, well, road racers will tell you what it's all about. But basically, it's a piece of wire that goes through a hole that you drill in the bolt. And take that wire to anything, another hole drilled in the crankcase or something that's a fin or something, or around a frame tube or something. And it's just a piece of safety wire so that the bolt can't back itself out. Even if it comes loose, it won't fall out. It can't and go anywhere. And also making sure that wire is pulling the bolt in the do-up position, not yes. pulling it in the undo position. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Very, very handy and takes off. takes a lot of stress. I do that for all my drain plugs and any critical bolts like... Um, brake pedal bolts and that kind of thing. Anything that's really critical, yep, safety wire. It takes takes a few hours in the shop before you go, but once it's done, it's done, and it really makes you feel a lot more confident. I, I've seen guys actually drop a, a transmission plug right out, drive along the highway, and then wonder why his bike's slithering around and figure, oh, I must have a flat tire. Nope, you dropped all your oil. You're now riding on it. Oh, look, uh, Grant, uh, there's a terrible story here, and this is a true story of a, of a young fellow who picked his bike up from a, um, a, a bike shop in uh, Ringwood and rode up a straight piece of road, uh, slid off the bike underneath the car and, and was killed uh, because the mechanic hadn't done up the drain plug and the oil went onto the back wheel and caused him uh, to come off. And, wow, I mean, that's gosh. a terrible story, but it just shows you how important that is. Anything under the bike that can get on the wheel, that's what you should be looking at straight up and yep. down. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let me put a question out to all of you that, um, you know, when, it, when we're talking about basic mechanical knowledge, have you ever had a breakdown where your basic mechanical knowledge or advanced has saved you from, you know, maybe a, a further problem rather than just being sitting there for a little bit longer, but maybe you had to get out of an area or you were in a bad situation. Has your basic knowledge ever saved you 
Do you have a story about that? Well, last month. Tire? Well, it could be anything. Yeah, last month I was uh, taking a, a TT600 that I bought to go uh, trail riding through the bush and I was having a great time on it. And uh, I came up over this berm around a, a right-hand corner and all of a sudden the front wheel locked up on me, which is pretty exciting <laughs> when you crept <laughs> <Hold up>. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd, just, I'd taken it out for a test ride and I had no tools with me other than my leather man. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, oh, what do I do now? And what had happened was the front brake had jammed on. And I got the Leatherman and used the pliers and I undid the, the band bolt uh, to let all the fluid run out of the, the front brake, which freed the front brake so I could ride home. All right, I didn't have a front brake, but I was able to get home. And um, what had happened was there'd been a modification done to this bike before I got it where they'd put a different handle on it. And the handle was constantly working on the plunger on the... Uh, hydraulics, which meant that the, the fluid that was in the line wasn't coming back up and down, it was just the same fluid until it got hot and expanded and, and jammed on the front brake. So a little bit of basic knowledge, and all right, I had to butcher a bolt, but I was able to get out of trouble. You yeah, can always replace the bolt easily. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I had one um, on the border of Ecuador and Colombia. It was getting dark, and running into issues with, or fear, I should say, of being kidnapped because that was the time when it was very, very dangerous in Colombia and I had a flat tire. If I hadn't known what to do, I'd still be there and I could have been kidnapped. But I was no problem, pull the wheel off, pull the tire out, replace the tube, put it all back together again, back on the road in 20 minutes. It's not a big deal if you know what you're doing. But if you don't know what you're doing, yep, you're going to be sitting there waiting and that's a bad place to be in a bad time. So basic, basic skills, not a big deal. It makes a big difference. Makes you, okay. certainly. We'd have to go fundraise and get you out of Columbia. <laughs> I don't know how much we did for you. That'd be quite an adventure. Not very much, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Russell Crowe would come in for you, Grant. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think it's it's important to have basic knowledge because. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're you're out adventure riding. You're traveling. It could be hours or days before somebody comes along to haul you out. And if you've got some basic knowledge, some basic understanding of how things work, you've been over it, you do your own regular maintenance, um, something breaks, you know how to use duct tape, you know how to use zip ties, you've got some bailing wire to tie things back on, you, you've got some basic concepts of how, to, how it's supposed to work so you can budget to make it work. Um, that's a real confidence giver because a lot of people are really afraid to get out in the middle of nowhere because what if it breaks? What do we do? Well, maybe you can fix it. Can't always. And sometimes you just have to wait and that happens, but, uh, hopefully you can fix it. And another good thing to take is, um, good, strong straps. And I use them, you know, if I have to chuck the bike into a ute or something, I've got tie downs, but we broke uh, the rear rack on, um, the 1150GS, didn't we, Shirley? Constantly. Well, we grabbed some air going over a, a bump and we heard this big crack as the uh, aluminium broke on the rack at the back. Mm. But I was able to use those tie-downs to jury-rig up um, the back of the bike to hold it up, up off the back wheel. Yep, good uh, one. Enough to uh, get to somewhere where we, where we could uh, get it fixed. Yeah, the BMW tie straps are fantastic. We carried six with us on our trip, which was actually used to tie the bike down in a crate, 
um, tie things on, tie on a big grocery bag, um, tie on Max's saddlebag, tie on Max's top box when they both came off at two different times in the middle of South America and various other uses. They make laundry lines. And best of all, you can go to your BMW dealer and if you've got a nice BMW dealer, you can get them for free. They give them away. Yeah. That's exactly what I used to. I've got, I've got heaps of them, Grant, and they are yep. great. Yep, they're fantastic. Get out there and visit. We use those w as well. Yeah, we use those as well, Grant. And, um, I mean, they can take up a fair chunk of space if you try and carry them with the luggage. So um, we always find some way of actually using them on the outside. So, for example, ours, um, we at least have two wrapped around the outside of our panniers, which helps hold them on if you take a tumble. Um, yep. But it just means that also you're not taking up space inside your luggage with them. Yeah, I don't put them in my luggage. They find a home somewhere, a little corner or a cranny somewhere. They roll up really small and just stuff them in a corner. That works. There's always a place to find them. Graham? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's I'm, there. I'm thinking of he's a story where your basic knowledge saved your butt. Um, no, he's thinking about the lack of Tabasco. I'm thinking, no, I'm... Um, I, I was thinking about that, but I've, I haven't got anything very interesting to say. <laughs> um, so you've never yeah, had to yeah, fix I, your bike in a strenuous situation? Yes, but it's not very interesting. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, you with your, with your brake lever, Graham. Uh, well, oh, that's a good story. Thanks, that's Sam. True. Can we redo that? Yeah. Oh, glad you asked okay. me, Jim. I've got a brilliant one. <laughs> <laughs> you are so natural. I love this unscripted <laughs> stuff. Okay, and action. <laughs> Go. Um, this wasn't really my genius. It was somebody else's genius. But I snapped a brake lever in Albania, a front brake lever. My back brake had already stopped working, and there was just a little stub. A previous trip, I'd taken spare levers with me, but because I got bark bashes anyway, I thought, well, it's superfluous. I don't need them. Yet somehow I managed to drop my bike in such a way that a rock got between the bar and the bark basher and snapped off the brake lever, and there was you could get no leverage on it at all. And, yeah, I was in just crossed into Albania. I ended up going back into Montenegro, and I'm thinking all the time, if I drill little holes through this and try and splice it to the bit that's broken off, that's going to weaken it so much. And someone suggested putting some mole grips on there, some little mole grip, vice grips, you call them the stakes. And uh, I clicked them on and they were just perfect, ergonomically perfect, worked so well. That, I can't really say that was my genius or even that it was because of my mechanical knowledge, but it was a brilliant way to fix a problem. And uh, a more mundane things would be like I always my clutch cable. I have a spare clutch cable that runs in line. And I was in Russia and I, my clutch cable broke. I was expecting it to do it because the clutch was getting heavier and heavier. And it was really like a Formula One pit stop. It was such a quick fix because the other cable was already in place and just take off the cling film that was on both nipples on each end. So water hadn't got in and bam, it's on the lever. It's on the on the little bit down in the crankcase and. And it works. So, uh, yeah, sometimes, and it's very, again, very satisfying to uh, that your knowledge and capability has got you out of a predicament without having to rely on somebody else. Um, but, it, yeah, it's good when it happens. And uh, that's all I've got to say about that. Yeah, I think sometimes <laughs> when, you, when you're using basic knowledge to fix things like that, like you're saying, you string your, your uh, new brand new cable right alongside the old cable so you can do the fast switch if anybody didn't pick that up. But, I mean, no. that's the kind of thing that, no. that would have been well, a whole wanna, ordeal. I want to interrupt you there, Jim. No, don't do that. String the new cable 
and then put it on and make it the cable that's working and leave your old cable as your spare mm. because you know of course. the old cable fits. Lots of guys have had the experience of stringing a brand new cable along, zipping it into place, and they think it's wonderful. And then the cable breaks and they go to connect it and it doesn't fit. It's the wrong one. Right. Okay. So, or, put the new or you one could on. put two new cables on. You could string two new cables, <laughs> drive over them, go. make sure they work. At least then you've got a good backup because I don't know about the old cables as a backup. I mean, I guess it's, it'll work for a while. But in any case, what I'm saying is, though, that that basic knowledge saves you a huge ordeal. What could have been a massive ordeal, you know, where you have to get somebody to fix it and get somebody to tow the bike or put it in a vehicle, you do it yourself and it's a non issue. You almost take it for granted that you can do these things. It's good to get some basics, just working on your own bike and doing the daily maintenance and checking things and tight checking nuts and bolts. You know, notice I say checking nuts and bolts as opposed to tightening nuts and bolts because it's easy to keep cranking it just a little bit every time and then it's way too tight. You've got to be careful. But just doing that regular maintenance and cleaning the bike um, makes you familiar with how things work and how they're supposed to be. It's really valuable. Yeah, cleaning a bike is good. I mean, from someone who used to ride old sort of 1970s shovelhead Harleys, I enjoyed cleaning it, but cleaning it was a, an important part of owning them because something had always vibrated loose. And uh, so, and even on your, you know, on your, on your round the world overland bike, although you don't want it to look clean because you might lose some credibility, as you do go around it, you'll notice things that have come loose. And uh, the same as sitting in the tent and staring at it also just, I mean, what what happened? I had an electrical problem on the KLR in Mongolia, and I took off the tank, big aftermarket tank, took off the tank, and the two, well, all three bolts, the two that go through the cylinder head and the one that goes on the frame, which hold the top of the engine in place, were all gone. They weren't there. So I thought it had been vibrating more than normal. <laughs> and uh, But they... Uh, I mean, I carry a little box of nuts, bolts, washers, spare valves, well, different things like that. And I had some bolts that went through it. Oh, my God, it was so smooth afterwards, not having the top end of the bike vibrating around in the frame. But but just be, if, if there's a hole, it looks like it might accept a bolt, then have a look, look and think, what would that be holding on? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, though. Just sitting and looking at it, looking at your vehicle, um, you can see if something's working loose. One of the things to watch for with the bolts is look for a ring around the bolt. It might be rust. It might be dirt. But if you see a ring, that a lot of times that'll indicate that something's moving, and it's probably not supposed to be moving, so you want to pay attention to it. But it's that sitting there, staring at it, looking it over, or like you say, washing it. I mean, who washes their bike? But um, washing it, that you know, gives you the opportunity to see things like that. Too right. I, I discovered a, a cracked subframe by going around and um, washing my bike, and um, another time washing my bike, um, one of the uh, the uh, throttle cable um, was wearing through. Um, it had got moved into the wrong place while riding, and it was wearing through on the other side. So between the frame and the the cable, um, if I hadn't been checking, that could have been an unhappy experience. Okay, when it comes to choosing someone to travel with how do you do that how do you figure out that yeah that's the right person like you see this advertised sometimes you know people will go on the forum and they'll say they're doing a trip or they're in an area and they're looking for somebody to ride with how do you set that up so you don't end up in a nightmare and how do you handle it when you actually get out there and you find that it doesn't work i mean do you guys have you run into this have you come up with any sort of internal rules that you have for yourself when you're riding with someone I have. I get a knife first. 
Oh, can I do this? Sam? Yeah, we've all I got like stories. This. I like this. <laughs> Graham, go ahead. You're first. Okay, I have run into this, and I had a, I was I was in I had been saying I was in Kazakhstan. I hadn't had company for a while. I put on Horizons Unlimited under the Riding Buddies thing. Uh, heading here, or I am here, I'm heading there, I can go slower, faster, go around in circles if I need to, anybody in the area. And this guy called me up via Skype, and we arranged to meet in Almaty, which is a sort of big uh, town in the south of Kazakhstan. He was a Swedish guy, no he wasn't, he was a Swiss guy, spoke perfect English, and we had compatible bikes, we had the same sort of interest in scenery and sights, we simply have similar budget. We spoke the same language, the same mindset. It was all good. We seemed to have the same diet. One of them didn't have, one of us didn't have a finicky diet or something. We seemed to have the same drinking habits. Everything seemed to be ideal. And we went off together. The thing we didn't discuss was time budget. He had about a year and he wanted to go around the entire world. I had about six weeks left and all I wanted to do was get to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. So consequently, he was pulling me all the time. Wouldn't stop, always trying to do a little bit further, a little bit all about getting it all done in his time frame. And it made us absolutely incompatible. Which, still friends with him and we got on well, but we were not, we were, if, if your time budget, which is something I'd never considered, is not compatible, then you haven't got the right, you haven't got the right riding partner. So what do you do now to make sure that doesn't happen again? Well, I'll ask that question as well. Although, to be honest, uh, meeting people on the road is, is ideal because you can stay with them for as little or as long as you want to. And you can you can just be good for a meal together. You can be good for a few days riding, whatever. I also met people who have gone off together, but one couple in particular were fully sponsored, two guys, and were uh, obligated by their sponsors to do this trip together, yet they clearly weren't getting on. It was this obligation they had to do. They'd be given their bikes, all their equipment, everything. And I'm sure in the planning stages, they were very compatible, but on the road, they were not. Uh, So at least when you meet someone on the road, you're not obligated to stay with them for a very long period of time. If you're setting off on a quest together and you have to stay together, that can be a nightmare journey. I'd just like to say Brian just looked at me. (laughs) (laughs) And? I'm not quite sure. I don't know whether he was looking at the nightmare journey. No way, darling. No (laughs) way, no. We've met a lot of people on the road that you just meet randomly and you're heading in the same direction and I think the longest we've travelled with someone is a couple of weeks and that's always worked out really well. But you're very right, Graham. You need to make sure... They either have the same budget or don't mind if you stay at a different um, accommodation and then you meet up for dinner or meet up in the morning because there's nothing worse than if you can afford to stay somewhere half decent having to stay in an absolute crappy place (laughs) because the person you're travelling with won't go the extra mile to, to pay a little bit more for their accommodation or vice versa. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's right. And, and, and the, the, Graham's right. The beauty of travelling on the road like that is you just say, okay, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to spend a bit of time here. We might catch up somewhere else and I might see you later on. Bye. And we've done that before. We've, we've travelled and met up with people and then separated and met up with them somewhere else when we've been taking our time and they've been rushing or vice versa. Mm. Um, so you need 
to be able to perhaps express yourself in the right way so it doesn't spoil your trip. But some of those random meetings are also um, quite often some of the best meetings of like-minded people when you're on the road to someone. If you met them in your hometown, you may not even want to talk to them, but because you've got this shared love of travel, you're in the same location and you can really get down and enjoy their company. It's good fun. The lady that just left here on a bike, um, she she was bemoaning the fact about um, uh, having to um, babysit babysit people on the road when she just wanted to ride, you know, and um, it happens, you know. You have good days, you have bad days and... That's what, you don't want to do that all the time. So that was her thing. Yeah, we know of couples that have headed off either whether it's two up or two bikes, and they've actually split up. Their marriage is broken apart because they had very different ideas of what the trip should be, and they weren't oh. sharing the load properly either. Yeah, um, we've seen that. We've had we've had a breakup in our front bedroom. Oh, it was, it was terrible. <laughs> In the end, I had to ask them to leave because they were just making not only their own lives a misery because their marriage was on the rocks, but everyone else around them. Well, we had, we had visitors at the same oh, travelers groups of travelers at once. <laughs> yeah, easy to do. But I think where, where people run into trouble, any two people is saying, I want to go around the world. And, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of details. Uh, and the devil is very much in the details. Like Graham was saying, What's your pace? How big a hurry are you? Um, if you've got different riding skills, uh, who li- maybe somebody likes a long lunch. Maybe somebody wants a short lunch. Maybe wants, you want to get going quick and early in the morning. Somebody else, well, the famous Johnson crack a noon start. It depends on your style of everything. Yeah, or they want a fag break all the time. So you've oh, just got God, your yeah. I'm ready to go and then they a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, and, and photographers. Speaking yeah. as a photographer, photographers can drive people crazy too. That's oh, true, because you want view. Well, you want to stop and take a picture, and you may want to take 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get a good picture, climb up the hill and get a picture of the bike, but somebody else could care less, and they just want to get rolling. You can run into all kinds of trouble with people. So and we always recommend in, that you – uh, sorry. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, as a photographer, it works the other way around as well. If, if someone's pulling you along and you want to stop and take that photo and you feel that you can't, then you're getting agitated because you're not getting the photo stop that you wanted to have. Sure. <laughs> Whoever's not the photographer or whoever's not the smoker is being driven crazy. It's very annoying <laughs> either way around. Um, and we recommend people when they head off on trips together, like you can get two buddies that have ridden together for day rides for years. And then they head off and they're going to do South America or something. Yeah, well, you want to make sure that you're not sharing stuff. People get this idea that if you share, you carry one stove and make it a bigger one and you carry a bigger pot and we, we're going to travel together all the way and it's great. Yeah, but what if you don't actually get along on the road every single day? What do That's you do? That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep the stove. I'll eat in restaurants. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's important that people say that, are you know, you got two guys that are heading off together. They both have to be able to say and feel good about it that, hey, I may want to go off by myself for a while and I'll meet you somewhere down the road. Is that okay? And as long as both people have that understanding in mind from the beginning and it's okay and it's part of the plan and everybody is organized to do that, then I think that's really important because you're not stuck. Because no matter who you're traveling with, even your spouse who you've been married to for 30 years, you can get a little aggravated sometimes. Well, if it's just a friend, that's a different thing. And maybe it's a good thing to take a break 
I know. Stop we know of guys. Surely. Like <laughs> I heard that groan too. The, oh. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> Sometimes you need a little bit of alone time, and that's okay. We all need a bit of that. I think it's important that people get that up front. They're good, they're good points, Grant, and uh, we do have a break from each other sometimes. You know, I'll go and lay and have a read of a book, or Shirley will go shopping and spending money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, he just looks like he can't resist. Dear. He's just got to get that job. <laughs> He's a sucker for punishment, that, that's for sure. Yeah, he is. That He's the one that goes really just isn't the right yeah. size yet, is it? I guess it's all that, all that time you kept your mouth shut on the road, Brian, for an easy life. And, you, and now, yeah. now it's all coming out. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, we're doing it again. We're doing it again, Graham. <laughs> You know, Birgit and I first met um, actually on the road and I wasn't looking for a girlfriend and she wasn't looking for a boyfriend, but life sometimes happens, doesn't it? And we linked up for a little bit of time in Germany because, you know, when you're out on the road, you're a very different person to the person you are when you're at home, just because you're surrounded by the environment that you are. So that was quite interesting. We got on fairly well together. But then we decided that we were going to ride together for, for three months in India and Nepal. And we were asking ourselves questions, you know, where are we going to get on? Um, how would the other person react if a situation got scary or difficult? Mm. Where are our objectives for travelling fully understood by each other? Because it's so easy to talk and not listen to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and would we be flexible enough to each other? And, you know, one of the key things that we both said to each other, um, that we were both thinking, uh, we said later on, was would we laugh a lot? I mean, I already knew that she could travel light because um, she was a bicyclist. But I guess quietly, one of my concerns was that she might be bossy. Um, but um, actually, the most thing that was concerning for Birgit was because she's got auburn hair and pale skin. She was really concerned about getting sunburn. And as far as bugs and climate and the price of hotels and dodgy hotels and all of that sort of stuff, she wasn't bothered about that at all. But as far as um, scary or difficult... Uh, we stayed in a hotel um, in Nepal, close to the India, Indian border. And one night in the middle of the night, we were wo woken up by a riot. Um, the smell of burning rubber and shouting and screams and shots and everything else. And um, it was that night that I began to think, actually, yeah, we could do a really long trip together because we were just both really calm. We carefully, quietly packed everything up so that we could leave in a hurry if we had to. And we just waited it out. And I tell you what, the scene in the morning was a scene of calm devastation. But we could ease on out. And the rest of the day was filled with sunshines and smiles and a very happy ending. <laughs> I can see the butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it doesn't always work out like that, does it? We, when, when we actually came in from Nepal into India, um, we should have changed money at the border. But we were through the border at nine o'clock in the morning and the bank didn't open until, until 10. And it was a lovely day. And we thought, ah, we'll just change money in the nearest town. Nearest town, nah, bank wouldn't change. Next town, bank wouldn't change foreign currency. Next town, bank wouldn't change foreign currency. And we're getting pretty darn low on petrol by this time. Um, and it ended up with um, leaving Birgit um, with the bike parked up down to our last litre of fuel um, while well, I persuaded a rickshaw driver to, to head on to the next town on a promise that he would get paid. And, um, that, but that was also another, how are you going to react when things go wrong? And if you get the right riding partner, it's just brilliant. Isn't it, Brian? Isn't it, Shirley? 
<laughs> of course it is. Of course yeah. it is. You found the love of your life there, Sam. Just yeah, as I, I certainly did. I certainly did. You know, I know of one couple that um, they'd been planning this trip um, through the Americas for years, uh, or dreaming about it for years, so I say. And one of them was studying and working really hard and getting horribly tired. So the other one did all of the planning. Um, they joined up on the road um, and it just started going wrong straight from there. Um, the girl had no respect for the guy for all of the hours of preparation that he'd done and he was trying to find things that she would be interested in and she was just tired and didn't have the energy and didn't respect the amount of energy that he put into things and they both got upset with each other, they didn't talk about it properly, um, they carried on travelling and they travelled on in sulky silence. I'm still amazed that they made it um, past the halfway point of the trip. Um, I mean, they just didn't know how to be honest to each other and they didn't know how to compromise and they didn't know how to understand the other person's point of view and they stopped sharing. And to me, watching those things happen was just the recipe for disaster. Um, and all of the things you guys have been talking about, um, if you get those questions right, none of those disaster things um, um, are a major risk of happening, I think. In fact, I don't know, but I, and I don't even remember what, what thread it was on, but when I did find that riding partner through Horizons Unlimited, and it wouldn't be a bad idea if at the beginning of the thread it said, ask these questions to your prospective <laughs> riding partner. <laughs> yeah. How about a yeah. shakedown run, you, you know, where you say, look, let's be non-committal. Let's do this short little run and see how it goes. Oh, I think everyone's on their best behavior when they do that, Jim. Oh, that's a good well, point. Well, this is it. Yeah, it's when it gets that's stressful, true. when it's cold, when you're wet, when you're hungry, when you can't find a room. That's when you spit the dummy out and you see the real person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, on to plugs. It is that time in the show where we have uh, our things that we want where to talk about. all the listeners about. switch off while we promote our stuff and try and earn some money from it all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so because they're usually interesting things. I mean, have you not been giving interesting plugs, Graham? Well, I tried to. Well, you're up first, so let's hear what you've got. Oh, God, have I got a plug? Right now, as we speak, I am in the recording studio recording an audio version of my first book, In Search of Greener Grass. And I'm working with a total pro. He's worked with everyone from Boney M to Peter Gabriel, Tina Turner. He has got a very good track history. And uh, <laughs> a friend of mine was saying, said uh, I was telling him about it. And they said, so all these people he's worked with, everything he's experienced brought him to the point where he is now working with you. And I said, yeah, but he doesn't seem intimidated or nervous at all. <laughs> so, it's funny, the twists in life, eh? Boy, I guess that's yeah. fantastic. He must be very grateful. He, I think he is, yeah. But um, <laughs> it does say all careers hit a low and I'll soon be finished and he can start climbing out of this pit. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway, the point is, he's, but for me, despite his qualifications and what a wonderful sound engineer he is, he is a very, very patient man. And he needs to be because reading out loud is very different to this stuff that I do here. This doesn't matter at all, you know. But when I'm when you're reading your book out loud, it's very important. Anyway, I've got a system. I've got a tone. I, mean, I listen to the playbacks. I am at least used to the way I sound. I can't say I like it, but I'm used to it because I hear it on Adventure Rider Radio. 
Anyway, it's going pretty well. It's going very well. It's nearly finished. And um, what I have running right now is a crowdfunding thing. But do not see it as a donation. What it is is simply a pre-order. There are other perks, box sets, various books, stickers, T-shirts, all that stuff. But ultimately, although it says crowdfunding because that's the only sort of unit there is to do it, it's simply a pre-order, a pre-order of the audiobook. And it's on two MP3 discs. I appreciate not everybody now has a way of playing discs on perhaps their skinny little computers. But this is a way for me to generate some income in pre-sales because it is an incredibly expensive process. Someone that qualified is not cheap. Someone with all that studio equipment. And then after I've finished, he's got to edit it all. So I would be so grateful if the listeners of Raw, who are familiar with my voice, some of whom might be familiar with my books as well, would do this thing for me and pre-order it. It's not expensive. And you will receive a beautifully designed gatefold cardboard CD wallet with two very, very cool MP3 discs in it. And the discs are like KLR brake discs. And uh, that's the printing on them. And uh, and then you can... Are you okay, serious? Like, okay, they really uh, like KLR brake discs? Oh, my, my, uh, my designer dude excelled himself. They wow. just look like KLR discs. Obviously, they haven't got the holes in them because they won't play very well. But that's the printing on them. Um, and this would help me out immensely. You will then assume you've got a disk drive somewhere, be able to then transfer it to your phone, your iPod, whatever, and play it in your car or when you're doing your thing that you do. Um, so I would really be so grateful to do this if you do this. And, and I'm not just asking for money for nothing. It's a genuine love. You can look look at the pictures on uh, on the link uh, and see what you'll be getting. And uh, uh, and that be and and you'll get it in time for Christmas, so you don't have to buy it for yourself. You can buy it for somebody else. The thing is, and I won't complicate this, but we don't know for sure at this point if people like Audible and iTunes will pick it up. It's going to be very professionally done, but they ultimately have the the final decision. So if they do and it's available for download everywhere, fabulous. But we don't know that. So at the moment, I'm putting it on MP3 discs so that anybody can get it. And of course, it's significantly cheaper to post than the book is. So people outside the England aren't paying extortionate postage because it's just like a letter. No, that comes in a nice sort of cardboard Amazon style envelope. So that's my plug. I'll get to the point. Right now, I'm recording the first book. It is available now on pre-order. And if you pre-order it, God, that will make a huge difference to me. I would really appreciate it. That's my plug. So we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. It's, it's an Indiegogo, isn't it? It is an Indiegogo thing. Also, right. there is a link directly on the homepage of my website, grainfield.co.uk. So on the homepage, I've taken off the box set thing. There, so you can go to the homepage. There is a link there to it. But it's an Indiegogo thing, yeah. Okay, very cool. And the neat thing is, is even if you've read your books already, you get to hear it in your own voice. And I think that probably gives you... I, I think a, probably a little bit different uh, view of the book because you're sort of, I think, seeing a little bit more through your eyes rather than, you know, when you read something and you imagine your own thing as you're, as you're reading through. So I think that well, could be I'm, worthwhile. I'm saying it in a very different way uh, because I am reading it out loud. And uh, prior to this, I listened to a lot of talking books. I listened to Sam's one to see how adventure books were. I've listened to the whole of John Cleese's autobiography and all these different things. And I thought, you know, what style am I going to do? But 
uh, ultimately, you develop your own own style. I kind of went for this British Essex accent because I'm quite good at that. And um, the thing is, is that what you're consistent. using now? Is that the British Essex yeah. accent? <laughs> yeah, I can't help it. It's just the way I talk. <laughs> Give me another one. What, do you do London? I'm not going to do accents. <laughs> there are, you know, I met Germans, I met French, I met Swiss, I met Mongolians, I met Russians. And I get to this point in the book where there's conversations where it doesn't really matter when you're reading it. But when you're reading it out loud, it's like, ah, am I going to speak like a Frenchman now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the big thing to remember with this is that it's, I really like the fact that, you know, you're not doing this as, a, as you're not looking for donations for it. You're not looking for just money. You're just pre-selling the, the book. And I think that's a great way to do it. So people go in there and they can, they can buy it now, help you out and get the book as well. So that's a, that's Absolutely. a great setup. And when, yeah. when is the cutoff for this? Um, I think it ends about the 10th of December, which is a Sunday. Okay. Uh, that way I can get them all out and, and pretty much delivered by Christmas. Okay, if you live in a very strange place, it is down to the individual postage services. But I'm pretty sure the majority of people, because like I say, it's only a letter size because it's only a, a sort of CD digipack. It's not. And um, pretty much, I can't promise, but I would imagine that the majority of people who do pre-order will get it in time for Christmas. And certainly probably in between Christmas and if not, almost definitely before 2020. Right. And if it's after this time, like so if people are listening to the show later on, um, they can still just go to your website and buy it there because it'll always be available there, if not through iTunes and through Amazon. For sure. 100%. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Great. Excellent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well done. <laughs> Shirley, what do you have for and us? Yeah, so Christmas oh. is coming. Do think about that if you've already got it. Think about how much it would enhance the lives of your friends, your family, your other half. It may get inspire them to go travel and then you'll have a partner. Ask them these important questions first. And, and you guys all have books available and Grant, you have videos available. So, I mean, you know, yeah. Christmas time, that's the time to you know drop everybody's website. Um, yeah, be doing our, our pre-Christmas plug here, but um, yeah, drop everybody's website. Ton of stuff in there for riders for the Christmas season. November's well, the time I, to do it because some of this stuff takes a while to get across an ocean. Yeah, good point. And unfortunately, you do have to pay the extortionate um, postage for if you want our books in the Northern Hemisphere, unless you go to Amazon and get the e-books. So, but, but you know, next year might be a bit different. Well, you? it might be, but that's not this Christmas. It's, <laughs> no. So, Shirley, what do you have? Uh, I don't have anything, I but do. my old man does. So, oh, old <laughs> <laughs> Brian, what do you have for us, old yeah. Brian? Thank <laughs> 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 you. Uh, a friend of ours, Dave Milligan, ships bikes uh, from Australia, New Zealand, across to Europe and he's doing so next year. And after copious bottles of red wine last night and all the rest of it, um, we're going to go over to um, the Europe next year as well. So if anyone in Australia wants to ship their bikes across to what's the Isle of Man TT or the Isle of Man Classics, Dave's got shipments going in the last week of February from Australia uh, and then mid-May leaving Australia. And returning loads uh, come back. Well, I think the last one is the 25th of September or thereabouts. Um, so if you haven't done it, do yourself a favour and go and watch the Isle of Man at least once in your life. 
And uh, look, we've used Dave before to ship to Greece and places like that, and he makes it so much easier for you. And you know, I, I costed it didn't cost us much more than what we would do it ourselves. So, but less anxiety. Hello, less anxiety. Uh, the trouble is, he drinks a lot of beer. So, <laughs> website. <laughs> Oh, he's he's darked up in the background. (laughs) Um, Website is uh, Get Rooted. Get Rooted. (laughs) He's not an Aussie, is he? (laughs) Get Rooted is another way to spell it. (laughs) And the new word, Routed, R-O-U-T-E-D. And he didn't pick it up, his missus did. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. So Get Rooted. Dave's goodbye. Getrouted.com.au. Yep, that's it. Right. Okay. Well, I don't, really don't. want to go to the Isle of Man. I, maybe I could try and meet you there. I, yeah. I'm reading, you know, I'm reading Guy Martin's autobiography at the moment, which, of course, is, is sort of based around the Isle of Man, and I've never, ever been the Isle of Man TT races. Oh, and you you're go. going as well. Maybe I should try and get there this year. Yep. Well, maybe you should. Year. We we were planning to if you go over there we'll go to your your place in Bulgaria and jump in your hot tub. Well, that's what I was thinking. If you're over here, I'll jump in your swimming pool in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Any (laughs) time. Having not washed. Oh 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 oh! No, we have rules. We have. (laughs) Yeah, if you can't stand yourself, you're not getting in our pool. (laughs) You mean you just don't categorically say shower first? <laughs> no, maybe we should. I've got a hose. I've got a hose if you're going to have Graham come over, I'm just saying, you know, you might want to post a sign. <laughs> yeah. And, and just don't let him up, swim yeah. in his Gore Tex. <laughs> Grant, oh what have you got for us? Uh, well, we've got a few things since it's coming up towards Christmas. We're talking about Christmas a little bit here. Um, I hate to push the season too much. But DVDs for Christmas presents, absolutely. Horizonsunlimited.com store for all the. DVDs that will get you inspired, get you informed, and get you out there and get on the road yourself. And, of course, you can also download on vimeo.com slash horizonsunlimited. So all the inspirational information that you could ever want, tons of it there. Great Christmas presents. We always find that uh, people really appreciate it. And I remember one couple wrote us one year, and they said she gave him the box set. And they said, oh, let's just have a quick look. Ah, it's Christmas. We Let's not – Oh, I just want to see a few minutes. So they watched a few minutes of it. They watched the entire seven discs throughout the Christmas holidays. They watched straight through. They loved it. So nice. It's lots of good stuff in there. Are all uh, the DVDs available on Vimeo as well? Everything except Road Heroes is available on Vimeo. Okay. Um, yeah, we've got uh, the Argentina event. And this is our third oldest event. It's been running since 2003. So Argentina, December 8 to 10, 2017, is on in the town of Viedma. Go to horizonsunlimited.com slash events to find out when that's all about. And last but not least, we have the hum. Some of you have heard about the hum. Some of you haven't. Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness. This is an off-road orienteering scavenger hunt event, which defies description. There's many ways to describe it. We call it orienteering, geocaching. Teams of two to four bikes, and we've got three coming up for 2018, Hum Appalachians, and that's going to be in West Virginia. The date on that, my brain has just had a complete blank. 
<laughs> hum Appalachian, September 14 to 16. And Hum Arizona is a new one that's coming up in April 13 to 15. So if you want to ride Arizona in the early spring when the riding in Arizona is absolutely fantastic, we're high up in the mountains. It's going to be a good event, lots of fun. So check out that Hum Arizona. And we've also got Hum Manashis is back again with some new riding area. We've virtually doubled the uh, area that we're riding in. So it's going to be lots of new checkpoints to find and beautiful riding trails to check out. And for those who aren't familiar with the Hum, again, there's lots going on. It's an adventure riding event. There's no set course. And I think this is the, the part that confuses people about the Hum. Like, what is the Hum? Well, it's not like your usual dual sport rally or ride. We don't give you a GPX track and you just go off and find the GPX points and follow a set route and follow everybody else and eat everybody else's dust. You get to figure it out yourself where you want to go and what your level of difficulty is. Because a lot of people are really good riders and a lot of people are less good and might want to do something a little easier. I remember one team we had at the Hamanashis last year was they were all over 70 they were all riding 650 singles, and they said, we want level three with good scenery. And we have that in the book that you get. It tells you whether it's level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. Five is for experts. Ones are for is dead easy. Anybody can ride it. And these guys are going to ride threes with a category or a level of five for scenery. So really scenic, relatively easy to ride. They had a fantastic time. You don't have to be an expert rider. And there's lots of backup. We, everybody gets a spot tracker. We come and pick you up if you have problems and basically take care of you and look after you and make sure you're going to be okay. And finally, the event is AMA and FIM sanctioned. So well-backed up international event. And it's an AMA national event as well, I should mention, for the U.S. events. So lots happening there. Check it out, horizonsunlimited.com slash hum. What's the date on the Monashies one? Monashies is July 20 to 22. All right. And that's it? That's it for me. I think that's enough, isn't it? I can do more. <laughs> I think so. I'm no, sure no, I can you, think of something. No, you're doing good, Grant. You did really well. <laughs> Sam, what do you have? Sam. <laughs> Sam. Sam. Sorry. Oh, oh sorry. Um, it's it's nearly midnight for me. Hang on, I'll oh. just wake up a second. Oh, stop whining. We're only halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> What's the big deal, midnight? I, I, just, didn't, I just didn't quite get the Graham Field tone of voice right, did I? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Try harder next no, time. But listen, seriously, um, I, I want to start off my plug um, by thanking everybody who has been involved in my recent trip to the United States. I want to thank everybody who put on, on the presentations and book signings. I especially want to thank all of those people who turned up for the presentations um, and, of course, those who bought books. Extra um, special thanks. And I particularly want to thank um, the people who hosted me along the way. I've had some absolutely fantastic hospitality in some drop-dead gorgeous places. It has actually been a simply amazing trip. So, um, yeah, thank you very much to everybody um, for that. Um, and, of course, it's Christmas, isn't it? So I, too, have to give my books um, a bit of a plug because they are on um, in paperback and on Kindle and in audiobook format. And the four books take you through Africa, uh, the next one across Asia, uh, the next one, um, Southern Africa and up through South and Central America, which is a bit of an odd mix, but it works. You read the book and you'll see what I mean. 
and of course North America, so Mexico, United States, Canada, um, and up towards Alaska. Um, now my books are available either directly from my website, which is um, sam-manicum.com, um, or from Amazon um, in the UK, um, and of course your local bookshop. And if they haven't got them in stock, then they can get them. And um, the distributors are really fast, so support the little guys. Um, now if you're outside of the UK and you're listening, then thebookdepository.com is the best place. And these guys do free worldwide delivery. And standard delivery time is um, more or less seven days. Can I add something in which I forgot? Sure. Gosh, this is terrible. If this um, is going out before the end of November, Brian and I and Dave Milligan from Get Rooted, not Get Routed, um, <laughs> will be at the Sydney Motorcycle Expo. And we'll all be together, so you can talk to us, buy our books, and talk to Dave about shipping your bike. Very nice, nice one. Okay, well, I think that's going to wrap it up then. That's uh, that's it for ARR Raw for November 2017. Thanks, everyone. All right. Talk Cheers. Cheers. Good talk night. Take care, Good night, everybody. Cheers. Bye. 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 Okay. Bye. Well, that about wraps things up for this month for ARR Raw. And before we go here, I want to ask you to consider dropping by our website and helping support the show by clicking on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker percent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on the show. It's our way of showing our appreciation to you. And there's a bunch of things in between there. We also have signed up for Patreon, which is a a monthly donation system where if you want, you can just put in your information there and, and give a certain amount each month. And that will certainly help things out as well www.adventureriderradio.com You can check out all the show notes for this episode and for all the episodes we've done with Raw as well as Adventure Rider Radio the normal show. Special thanks to the co-hosts or or I should say the campfire panelists on this episode. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria and has some great adventure motorcycle travel books. Visit his website www.gramfield.co.uk. Sam Menicom lives in the UK. He's also the author of great adventure motorcycle books and articles. www.sam-manicom.com Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks also have books out. They have great moto books on their travels. Find them at Aussies, or sorry, www.aussiesoverland.com.au And of course, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum to connect travelers from around the world, so drop by their website and check out what that is all about. It's certainly a place you should be going by regularly. They also put the hub meets together, which are around the world. Basically, no matter where you live in the world, I think you'll be able to find a hub meet close to you, and I encourage you to go to these things. There's so much information and just camaraderie of meeting other travelers and other people who are just interested in traveling. See the worldwide list of hub meets at www.horizonsunlimited.com. And special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. See you next month.